Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Very glad that you're joining us today on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated to your Bible questions for the most part. If you have questions on the Bible, you can send them in through our multiple online platforms. I'll be fielding those as we go along and we have wonderful brothers here in the Lord who will delve into scripture to find the answers to those. So it might be a specific passage or verse of scripture, maybe a question on lifestyle or worldview, um, maybe something you're going through in your own world that you'd like a, a biblical and scriptural perspective on. Really any honest question on the Bible, we are here to receive those questions and answer them with the help of God's Word, the Bible. My name is Dave Robson. I will be fielding all those questions and your host today. With us today, Sean Richards over here. How are you doing today? Disillusioned. You're disillusioned? Why is that? I found out the majority of Bobcats are not named Bob. Oh, that is very disappointing. I'm very sorry to hear that. Over here to my right, your left. Peter Martin. What's your name again? Peter Martin. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> Peter. You got to enunciate the R. Or else it doesn't Peter. <laughs> Pastor Peter Martin. <laughs> no. It's very hard. Very American. Yes, it was. You're doing <laughs> I good? That. I am doing good. You have your, your drink there. You have your Bible. You have a laptop. Looks like you're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. All I right. got my Irish drink right here. Oh, you do know? you? <laughs> but in first Patrick's Day coming up or yeah, something? Yeah, to get me through the day. No, well, very kidding. good. Well, I hope it does that. That's not true. <laughs> got our lime EGs. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it is. I see it steaming though, so it's something warm. <laughs> that's good. Well, anyway, less of that. As I mentioned, reason for hope is a live broadcast. We are with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We're here in Tucson, Arizona. But of course, wherever you are in the world, you can join us through the wonders of the internet, which is very exciting. Uh, a great place to go to see our video and to interact with us is our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. Um, so while you're on our website, be uh, make yourself at home. Why don't you just poke around and see what you can find? We have an events and sign-up page right there uh, with all our upcoming events. If you're looking for somewhere to fellowship here in the Tucson area, you're more than welcome to come and check us out. We're near Prince and I-10, right on the west side of the freeway. Um, but if you have a home church already, then we've no interest in trying to poach you. Uh, but uh, please uh, do uh, check out our website. But for the purposes of A Reason for Hope, you can follow that Watch Live tab right there. It will take you to our live page. Uh, when we are live, you will see a, the video right there. You can sign in with a username of your choice. When we're offline, you'll just see a countdown to our next live show and a schedule there of all the upcoming events, whether it's um, our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship or our daily uh, Bible Q&A Reason for Hope that you're listening to and watching right now. So that's ccftucson.online.church. That's the direct link. Or just follow the link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website. We are on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, search for that. If you've been blessed by our ministry on some of these platforms, please do like and share us around. We'd love to reach out to your friends and just widen our scope there. So just share us around and don't forget to like. But that's one way you can uh, comment with your questions. I will be monitoring that as well. We have an app for your mobile device, whether it's uh, iOS or uh, Android. If you look for that uh, white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, that's our app for your mobile device, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And also on Roku and Apple TV, we have channels. So if you have one of those devices, whether it's like a Roku stick or a, a TV that has Roku already built in, a smart TV, or an Apple TV device, look for us there as well. Of course, we're on YouTube, youtube.com slash at a reason for hope 546, or just look for a reason for hope. That is the name of the channel on uh, YouTube, A Reason for Hope. 
that's a great place to go for archives as well. If you go to that live tab, you'll see every time that we've gone live, it archives it there so you can re-watch a show or catch up on one that you may have missed. Um, that's a great resource for you on YouTube. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, on Twitter. He's not with us today, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday are his uh, usual days. He posts on Twitter highlights from the show and also commentary on world events and news events and things like that. It's very interesting to follow along if you're interested in prophetic things and kind of end time things and that kind of stuff. There's so much going on in the world relating to the end times that we are in. Um, so follow, follow along with Scott Richards or to Scott R4H on Twitter and I will put my tongue back in my mouth properly and continue to speak. And this is a new thing that Sean here has set up. Um, if you're on Rumble, it's a relatively newer platform, but uh, Sean posts videos in there as well. You might want to check that out if you're on Rumble. I understand that it's uh, uh, somewhere that um, uh, kind of handles their censorship and things like that a little bit better, so we're not likely to get kicked off of there for believing in the Lord and teaching him and all that kind of stuff. Which uh, is nice. Which is nice indeed. So Rumble, if you've heard of that or you're on it, look for A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A, and you'll find us right there. And last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address, questionsforhope.com spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you're listening to the last show we did pre-recorded, so yesterday's show, basically. So you'll want to use that um, email address to send your questions in, and we'll try and get to those on our next show. Well, with all that being said, Peter told me that I take too long doing that, his, and his uh, segment is much shorter. So we'll see what he's going to share with us today. And you can vote. You can send in the vote <laughs> on who took longer. <laughs> to speak. I'm just teasing. Please, would you like to pray for us yeah. today? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you. We pray that as we dive into your word right now and study, uh, study it to answer the various questions that we're going to be getting, that you would be honored and glorified during this segment, and that people who are listening would be exhorted, they would be brought up in their understanding of you and greater clarity. We love you so much, God. We want to honor you and in your name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. So Tuesdays um, usually do a bit of an apologetic moment. Apologetics being the study of what we believe and why we believe it. So is this something you like to share with us? Yeah. Which is going to take less time than my intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, your intro is five minutes. So <laughs> okay. I was well, we'll counting, see. So. We'll <laughs> no. see, won't we? Uh, but anyway, so last week we were talking about Jean-Jack Rousseau, who was one of, the, I guess you could call him the first major thinker within the European philosophical community that started the descent away from God. So in this series, we're going over the various philosophical thinkers who have drawn Western society away from the Judeo-Biblical grounding that took over a millennia to build up and why they've done what they've done. So if all the stuff happening in our culture right now seems really crazy and you don't know where it's coming from, what we're doing is we're studying the thinkers that led to the current moment. And if uh, we had been paying attention to what they were saying hundreds of years ago, the current moment wouldn't seem so crazy. Uh, another reason why we're doing it is it helps you to interact with our current cultural moment, to understand the thoughts underpinning the ideas that are permeating our culture and society right now. And the final reason why we're doing it is because since this is so saturating to our culture, it's very easy for Christians to adopt a lot of these thoughts within their own theology without knowing it. So they think that they're studying the Bible and getting sound orthodoxy from the scriptures, but actually they're being influenced by pastors who have been influenced by these various thinkers. So it's very important to know why they said what they did. And once you figure out why they said 
the particular things that they did, it's very easy to see why that doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches. So Rousseau is, as I said, he's one of the, the biggest steps away from God that we have. There were other philosophers around his time like Voltaire and Hume who were very prolific during the day, but most people don't really know much about Voltaire and Hume. <laughs> Their ideas are pretty much lost in the sauce. His ideas, the reason why they're so dangerous is because he was a very eloquent writer. He was very accessible. Mm. He was self-taught. And so most people know him. And as we go through this study, we're going to study Karl Marx, we're going to study Sigmund Freud, and we're going to study Charles Darwin. And the interesting thing about all three of those guys is they all loved Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They all thought he was great. And today we're going to go through a little bit more of his quotes, and you're going to see why each one of those men liked him so much. But remember, his central premise is he does have a weird deistic view of God. Now remember, deism is not atheism. You are believing in some form of God, but it's not a personal God, and it's not the Judeo-Christian God. So he was kind of a nominal deist, but he was an evolutionist. He believed that we descended from the animals, uh, and therefore were not very special. He denied any type of original sin, and therefore he thinks that what's fundamentally wrong with mankind is polluted by society. So anything wrong with a person is not their fault, it's society's fault. Society has corrupted that person away from the true and good being that they were designed to be. Now, don't get an idea that he had some utopian vision of what mankind was like before, uh, before society became too prolific. His idea was more animalistic. He thought we were just a higher animal that lived off the land. He's the one that coined the term the noble savage. He's the one that thought that the native peoples in tribalistic communities were the closest to what man ought to be. He thought mm. they were the most peaceful, he thought they were the most harmonious, and he thought that they were the best. And he thought that modern Western civilization needs to go back to that. So his seminal quote, the one that actually most people have heard, is from his book called The Social Contract. And it says, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. So he's saying you're born free, you're born a child of innocence and purity and potential, and then your evil parents and society screw you up, mm. right? Uh, so we're going to go through a couple of his quotes and we're going to see he had interesting thoughts about the economy, which we're going to talk about next. And then he also had interesting views of the country, uh, what, what we would call government and how that should be set up. And when I go over these quotes, you're going to see a lot of po the political left is still very much influenced by, by this guy. So mm. this is from a book called A Discourse Upon the Origin and the Foundation of the Inequality Among Mankind. Kind of a mouthful of a title but what are you going to do? <laughs> and uh, this is what he says. The first man who, after enclosing a piece of ground, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. So remember, his view is civil society is evil, mm -hmm. and it's corrupting to the people that are a part of it. What began civil society? Private property, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds... An awful lot like Karl Marx, because Karl Marx, like I said, derived a lot of his ideas from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm. This idea is everything that's wrong with the world is private property. And if we got rid mm. of it, right, if we had, let's say, some organization, a governmental organization at the top that could redistribute private property to make it public to everybody, then the world would be a utopian paradise. Mm. Again, that is exactly what Karl Marx thought. And once we get to the Communist Manifesto, you'll see that more and more clearly. So when you're looking at 
the government today, and they're talking about equity, not equality, right? That's a different word. When they're talking about equity, they're deriving that ideal from Rousseau. They're saying what's wrong with the world is not that we don't have equal opportunities, but it's that we don't have equal access to various things. Mm. Now, he took it even more steps than that. He thought that even people having different gifts was a form of inequality and led to evil. So someone who's stronger or someone who's better looking or smarter, that leads to inequality and that's bad too. We need to get rid of all of it. Uh, that's, that's all terrible and everyone needs to be totally equal. This is, so if you're listening to teachers today and they legitimately are saying this, saying that math is racist, and you're like, how in the heck can you believe that math is racist? Well, the reason why they believe math is racist is because, and they, they, they mean that by the way, what they mean is that any inequality of outcome is a result of an inequality within the society. And it needs to be removed so that all peoples are, have equity, which is equal outcome, not equal opportunity. Rousseau was the founder of all that line of reasoning. Now, John, real quick before we move on to the next point, is the Bible opposed to private property? No. In fact, when Israel was brought into their land, God was very much in favor of specific tribes having specific areas and also noting the treatment of his property, his creation, being taken out of the hands of the Canaanites and into the stewardship of Israel also came with its stipulations. This property is mine. I'm stewarding it to you, and you're to treat it like you would treat anything that belonged to someone you respect. Mm. We also note, and uh, I have some history with this kind of lesson, uh, we regard all of creation the same way, that this is God's property and that we steward it out of our love and respect and admiration for him. We don't consider it all something to be used or abused. We do recognize it as having not only our ownership, but that the responsibility of that ownership brings with it the, I guess, uh, calling opportunity to reflect God's nature where and how we can, yeah. where with what we're given. And that's a key word that you just mentioned, uh, uh, stewardship, right? That's a, that's a very unique Christian idea, Judeo-Christian idea, and this comes from Genesis chapter 1, where God tells Adam and Eve, Gen Genesis 2, sorry, where God tells Adam and Eve that they should fill the world and subdue it, right? Some people, when they hear the word subdue, they hear dominance, we're, we're to dominate the world. But what God is actually saying is, I own the world, I need you to fill it and subdue it to my glory, right? You're going to put it under your power, which is under my power, and we're going to rule together. That was the idea. Um, that is very different than Rousseau, who says that all private property is evil, and so we don't own anything, right? There is no ownership. I think it was Klaus Schwab who, a year or two ago, said, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Right. That's the idea of the abolition of private property. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, no, it's it's mine. Like it's literally mine. This piece of ground belongs solely to me. I have no responsibilities. I have no accountability. It is all mine. Right. That's also evil. And by the way, that was the idea that Rousseau was arguing against. Absolutely. So the French government had become incredibly corrupt and they were stealing from people and they were misusing uh, different finances and allocations that were made to them, and they were depriving their citizens of those uses. So that's what he was fighting against. But notice he missed the mark, right? He, he went the other way, but he went a little too far the other way. The idea that the Christian has is we have stewardship. 
We own things, but we mm. only own things through the power and authority that God has given to us. Mm. So we have responsibilities in how we use those things, right? Now, this is very in line with what the founders of America believed, that the government has power, but the power that they have is derived from the ultimate power, mm. namely God, and therefore they have responsibilities to God in how they govern the people. Mm. And if they do it inappropriately, the founders of our country believed that we have the right to resist or to rebel in different ways, depending on how severe that inequality might be. Rousseau's idea is, no, it's all bad, right? Any rulership, any ownership, that's all bad. That's what leads to problems. All right, next quote. The social order is a sacred right, which is the basis of all other rights. Nevertheless, this right does not come from nature and must therefore be founded on conventions. This is from his book, The Social Contract. This might be the most dangerous idea that Rousseau had. Mm. Notice what he says at the end. The right does not come from nature and must therefore be founded on conventions. Mm. What Rousseau is saying is that everything that we see around us is social convention. We just made it up. Now, if it's social convention, that means that it is infinitely elastic. So actually, yesterday, your dad and Adrian talked about one consequence of this level of thinking. So is money a social convention? Now, from Rousseau, he would say, absolutely. It's totally made up. It has no basis in reality. Mankind has just looked at dollar bills and said that is worth something. And that's what makes it worth something. Mm. Well, if you start with that premise, it's very easy to get to the conclusion of what we call today, and this is propounded by Elizabeth Warren, is a huge proponent of this. It's called modern monetary theory. So the idea is, if money is purely a social convention, something that men just made up, then that means that we can make money equal whatever we want. So there's no consequences to just printing out money, mm. like monopoly money, and just using it, and just by fiat, that's that's what we call our currency now, fiat currency, fiat is Italian for essentially like command or authority, mm. right? So just by fiat, just by saying so, this dollar stays a dollar. Does that work? No, no matter how much people are saying this dollar is still worth what it was last year, it is not worth what it was last year. You cannot go against reality. We have social conventions, but those conventions more or less, uh, I guess you could say, coincide with reality. Mm. And when they don't coincide with reality, there are consequences. So another social convention that is under attack right now is gender roles. People say, well, yeah. gender roles are just totally made up, right? We just created them in a vacuum. We just said, well, mm. men are gonna do this and women are gonna do this. It's completely arbitrary and it could be, any, it could be rearranged in any way we want. Well, that's not true. There, it is a social convention, but it's a social convention based on something, yeah. right? It's based on something real. Uh, here's a more concrete social convention. How about math, right? So when you go to school and you learn about numbers, numbers are a social convention. You can't find a two anywhere, right? You can't find a one. You can't find an addition sign, mm. right? Now, all those things that I just mentioned, they're symbols that represent a reality. Right? I can represent one to you. I could show you one of an object. I could put a symbol that represents one, and that's the number one in English. But different languages have different ways of representing that value, by the way. Mm. But all of it is a social convention. However, if I use those conventions correctly, we can put a man on the moon. Right? If you mm. use math correctly, you can predict accurately the way that reality works, or even like with what you do in music. Mm. Right? If you could predict things accurately using those 
numeric values, you can create harmony. Mm. And harmony is pleasing and disharmony is displeasing, mm. right? So are they conventions? Yes, but they do correspond to something. He's making the claim that since they are conventions, they're infinitely elastic. We can change them and rearrange them as we see fit. Now, he wasn't willing to go the full hog like Nietzsche was and say that we need an ubermensch, we need some higher man that's going to rearrange things solely on their willpower. He was still kind of like, well, there is something that uh, is real. There is something that is at the bottom true about humanity. He was really vague about what that was. And that's why these things got rearranged so rapidly. And this is what led to the French Revolution. So the French Revolution had this idea of, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Well, you know, since all these conventions are just man-made, we can make them whatever we want. And so they started creating social conventions out of thin air, thinking that they can get back to peace and harmony within their civilization. They totally ruined it, right? They completely annihilated their own society, so much so that they were longing for a dictator, right? The, the revolution that was supposed to make them free ended up with a dictator, namely Napoleon, right? There's a reason why people wanted Napoleon is because they had annihilated all values and all morals, and they needed a strong man to put those things back together, right? Which is, by the way, this is an aside, but if you want fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism within the West, keep going the direction that we're going, right? Keep telling people that these things don't have anything that they adhere to, that it's totally arbitrary and we can make it whatever we want. There's going to be a backlash that's going to come. Every revolution that does that always ends up with a dictator, right? Mm -hmm. Napoleon is always going to be the, at the end of a revolution like that. So if you want it, keep going. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't personally want that. Anyway, uh, let's read another quote. This is an interesting view he has on democracy. Once again, this, this really affected Karl Marx. Again, the sovereign, that's what he calls the state, by the way, being formed wholly of the individuals who compose it, neither has nor can have any interest contrary to theirs. And consequently, the sovereign power need give no guarantee to its subjects because it is impossible for the body, notice that, impossible for the body to wish to hurt all of its own members. So the idea is you should have what's called total democracy. No checks, no balances, majority rules all the time. And the reason why is because the majority is always going to vote on what's best for them, and what's best for them is going to be best for everybody. Now, Karl Marx picked up on this because people would say to Rousseau a, a, a sound argument against him is, well, if what you're saying is true, how come there's so much disunity in voting? Right? If everyone's going to vote for what's best, then you would expect like 90% of the people to be voting for one thing and only 10% to be voting for the wrong thing. Mm. Now, Rousseau had an argument, but it wasn't very good. Marx's argument is scary. It's very, it's like demonic, it's so scary. So his argument was, well, it's because the people don't know what they actually want. We need to teach them what they want. And so this idea, he came up with, he coined a phrase called the false consciousness of man. And again, we'll talk more about this when we actually get to Marx. His idea of the false consciousness is that society has polluted people into believing something that's not true. And we need to show them that what they're believing is not true so that they vote for their best interest. So in other words, we know what's best for you. You don't know what's best for you. Mm -hmm. The people at the top, the elites, the oligarchy, right? We know what's best for you. You don't know what's best for you. So whenever you hear someone on the news say, 
this is a threat to democracy, right? When someone actually votes to put something through, you would say, well, how is that a threat to democracy? How is it a threat to democracy that the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade and gives the right to vote on abortion rights to the states? How is that anti-democratic? That sounds pretty democratic to me. Mm. Well, it's anti-democratic from their view because democracy for them equals what is best for people. And what is best for people is what the TV said. That's right. It's whoever's at the top figures out what's the best. And then their job is to convince everybody else, no, this is actually what's best for you. Mm. Right. So if you're if you're happy with the things the way things are, you are actually being deceived. You're in the false consciousness and you need to be pulled out of it. Right. This is the same reason why when I was a kid, race relations in this country were pretty good until about 10 years ago. And that was uh, during the Ferguson riots of 2014. Right? And you can look at all the polling data. And you can see that race relations in, the, in, in America were pretty dang good until 2014. And mm. then they just went off a cliff. And the people who are at the top who are promoting this stuff, you'd say, well, don't you see the effects of what you're doing? People are less happy now. You've caused ruckus. You've caused problems. And they would say, well, we're not causing problems. These people were in a false consciousness. They didn't know that they were oppressed. We had to convince them that they're oppressed, and now they're finally rising up and overthrowing the status quo. That was their idea. Now, from a Christian perspective, is man good? Should we really give unfettered authority to mob rule? Is that a good idea? No, no, and no. <laughs> if we're going to go off of the scriptures we're given, and of course the reasons we have to trust them, it gives an unblinking eye to a nation that was given perfect law a perfect consciousness, a perfect perspective on how things ought to be, and within a month, literally, rebelled against every single one of them at the same time. And the lesson in that isn't just, well, this observation about man's rebellious nature. No, a literal historical example in Israel who were given all of the signs to know that this was coming from a perfect consciousness, that being God, that this was being dictated to them by a benevolent authority, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. And even in spite of that, man defaulted back to his old habits despite swearing before a mountain of fire, <laughs> talking to them and telling them his laws, that they would go back to the way that felt right to them, even if it was destructive and even if it would incur penalty. Mm. So in the face of fear, in the face of corruption, and in the face of absolute holiness, mankind will still default to his fallen <clears throat> nature, meaning rebellious. So we look at that and say, can there be this, and I'm sure we'll discuss him at length at some time too, this philosopher king who will rise one day? And the answer is no, we are defaulted against that. Our hope is that God will re-enter the human scene and, of course, rule this world, but some very ugly things are going to happen, or rather be allowed to happen, first. And the more that we delude ourselves into thinking it's the reverse, that will build ourselves up until Jesus eventually just kind of slides in in the process, that is a thought that was thrown out the window after World War II. Mm -hmm. And we need to be sensitive to these things because they're based on decidedly anti-biblical principles. And I have more reason to trust the Bible's observations on human nature than modern, and you know, 500 years maybe, mm -hmm. about modern philosophers' very much skewed perspectives of themselves and others and how they think society should be run, especially since we've seen the fruit time and time again. Mm, absolutely. So one last thought before we 
uh, end for today. And by the way, next week I'm going to have uh, my friend and uh, co-laborer Lisa Keller on the program. We're going to talk about Christian parenting because one of the mm. big books that Rousseau wrote is called A Meal, and it's all about raising kids. So he came up with an entire philosophy on what it means to raise a child and all the way from birth to essentially adulthood. And it is where a lot of people get the idea of how to raise kids today. Mm. And it's bad, right? It's really, really bad. So this is the this is from Emil. First maxim, far from being too strong, children are not strong enough for all the claims of nature. Give them full use of such strength as they have. They won't abuse it. <laughs> so parents, the reason why your kids are acting up, it's not because they have too much leeway. It's because they don't have enough. Mm. You need to give them more, right? You need to give them more leash. You need to give them more... Uh, liberty, right? You don't want to hem them in. He actually argues in this book that you should never discipline your child. Mm. Uh, you should just let them roam free. Because again, what happens to kids when you discipline them? You're corrupting them. Mm -hmm. You're putting your views on them that are already corrupt. You Did want he have them. kids? Uh, he had he had five illegitimate children. He committed all of them to asylums, essentially. <laughs> uh, he didn't raise any of them. So yeah, not exactly a practice what you preach kind of guy. Uh, but Emil, I mean, the, the I, I said last week, this is essentially a baby book. Mm. And it's hilarious how bad it is, mm. right? So let me just give you one example. He said, how do you teach a kid how to walk? Well, for most parents, you know, you kind of help them along and there are like modern devices that help them. He's like, just put them in a field and just let them try to walk. <laughs> just put them in a field and let them try to walk and just biff it as much as possible. And maybe if an animal tries to attack him, intervene a little bit, but just, just let him do it. But notice what his philosophy is. It's kids are naturally good. Kids are closer to what you should be than you are. So why would you command your kid? Your kid should be talking to you. Mm. So again, if you've ever wondered, why do we have people like Greta Thunberg standing up and lecturing adults about global warming? And why are they given a platform, right? Mm. Why, why, are, why are kids standing up and talking about various things and parents are listening to them? They're saying, wow, like that's so wise. Well, it's because we have this stupid idea from Rousseau that you're born innocent, you're born good, and then society corrupts you. So of course kids should lecture adults because they know better. They legitimately know better than the adults who have been corrupted by society. Mm. And so we should listen to them. Why would I tell my child that what gender they are? They should tell me what gender they are and I should listen to them because they know better than I do. I've been corrupted by the social conventions of my society. My child knows way better than me. And his view, we don't have time to get into it, but he wrote a, a book called Confessions, which was an autobiography. And in it, he makes the argument that the way to be true to yourself is by living into what you believe about yourself, right? Living your truth. That was his mm -hmm. idea. And so if I'm corrupting someone away from what their truth is, right, their natural innate instincts, I'm corrupting them away from what's good, right? This is what's wrong with people is corrupting uh, individuals away from what's good. Mm -hmm. And your inner man, your psyche, that's what is going to steer you in the correct way. Mm. This is why also Freud was so obsessed with diagnosis of neuro neuroses and pathologies. It's because he believed that the only thing that's really wrong with mankind are these mental disorders, right? Society and mental disorders, that's all that's wrong with you. It's not your fault. It's not about your decisions. They did not believe in something called the will, which can actually have autonomy and act on its own desires. So. Uh, very interesting thinker. Like I said, next week we'll get into, we'll just talk about uh, Christian parenting. So if you guys have any questions about that, come tune in on Tuesday. We'll be discussing that. But Excellent. any last thoughts on Rousseau before we jump into the questions? No, I think we're ready.
Yeah. One of the things I got from that is that we're we're uh, stewards and caretakers of what we have, right? I guess that's the way to the way I see that anyway in what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, that we're just caretakers of what we have, everything we have. That's very cool. Well, thanks, Peter, for sharing that. Uh, questions here coming in. Thank you for those. We have a question from Kay, and you uh, restated it, I think, from yesterday. So thank you for doing that. That's a great way. If we don't get your question, just keep uh, you know nagging us about it <laughs> in the most wonderful way. Uh, Kay asks, uh, Greg Laurie interviewed Alice Cooper on his channel once, and he claimed to be a Christian, yet he still plays satanic heavy metal music unlike Skillet. Is he truly saved? And this being a sanctification issue, or is this something else? I don't know what satanic heavy metal music means. Uh, when we're talking about something being satanic, we need to first, I guess, clarify terms because that's so often meant to use associated with dark themes. In all honesty, the Bible is a very dark book. It portrays evil with an unblinking eye. And if we associate any imagery that, ironically enough, have nothing to do with the devil as the devil, then I think we're giving him more attention than he deserves. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're told that the nature of something being demonic, the workings of Satan, are according to all signs, power, and lying wonders. The nature of the demonic is in deception. And unless Alex Cooper's chords are conveying some sort of false message, you're allowed to not like a certain brand of music, but right. that doesn't make it satanic. Likewise, in the visuals that he portrays in the, you know, 80s and 90s, you know, hardcore visuals and stuff, obviously it was quite a sight to him as well as everyone else in reflection when the crowds uh, tore a chicken to death when he threw it out into the audience. He didn't even intend for them to do that, but there we were. I think that's more on account of the drugs than his incentivization through the music. But the point being made is you look at stuff like Judas Priest, you know, breaking the law. That's okay, an example of something that's ill-advised and will result in consequences, but it betrays it as something inspiring. Well, the Bible itself would agree there is pleasure in sin for a season, but the end of that way is death. So in a way, it's half of a truth, which is a lie. That would be an example of false doctrine. When it comes to Alice Cooper, I, I would encourage you, Kay, to just listen to what he had to say, because in his interviews, he clarifies, I'm just being an actor, essentially. I'm playing the bad guy because that's generally what tends to be more popular. But as far as my own personal convictions, my own relationship with the Lord, there is absolutely no reason for us to question his salvation because someone's salvation isn't dependent on how they play music. It isn't dependent on how they dress. It isn't even dependent on the way people react to or form conclusions off of what they wrote. If, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, was a, you know, just a fan of Tarzan, I guess, and that's all he intended to give from his messages. It wasn't, but if that was all he intended, then the fault would be his followers and the people who communicated his message falsely, not the speaker himself. So if we're going to point at Alice Cooper and says, he's a man, but he wears eyeshadow, that's satanic, that's silly. But if, on the other hand, we're going to say, what does or doesn't make someone a Christian? What would be the fundamentals? Yeah, so uh, the the definition of Christianity, or, or what we would call an Orthodox Christian, is based upon uh, faith in particular fundamental truths, right? Uh, and our, our desire to adhere to them. And, and we have difficulties with them, but they, they exist, and we have to 
to the best of our ability, adhere to them. So we try to keep it as broad as possible, but there are limits. So the, the broadest possible definition for a Christian that I could probably give is someone's view of God, which would include their view of Jesus. Who do they say that God is? Do they, do they believe that he is a tri-personal being? Do they believe that he can be known? Do they believe that uh, he created the heavens and the earth? Do they believe that he became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ? Uh, the next thing that they have to believe is, do they believe that Jesus died for our sins? In other words, how do we have a relationship with God? How do we have a right relationship with God? Mm-hmm. If they believe that the only way to have a right relationship with God because we are sinners is by putting our faith in what Jesus did for us on a cross, namely that we're forgiven through his atoning sacrifice, that's also something that they have to believe. And then finally, it's what's our source of authority in understanding all these truths, namely the Bible, the Mm -hmm. scriptures. So if someone can agree on those points, and there's a little bit of flexibility in some of those, but not a lot, uh, then we can call each other brothers in Christ. Now, uh, let's say, for instance, there's other people who have come to faith, like Brian Head Welch is, uh, is an example, as well as Fieldy. They were part of a band called Corn, and they had some pretty atrocious lyrics. <laughs> pretty, uh, I, I don't know if any of them were blatantly satanic, but they were bad, you know, like really bad, talking about uh, very, very sexual, very, very glorifying to a lifestyle that would be contrary to what we see in the scriptures in every fundamental way. And when they came to faith, they went back into the band Corn, and now they use it as a platform in order to uh, share their faith. Now, some people would look at that and they would say, well, you shouldn't be up there promoting lyrics that are this an- antithetical to the doctrines of Christ. And they have a point, right? Maybe they shouldn't, right? That's a, that's a secondary issue that Christians can argue about. On the other hand, people would say, well, but by being in this band, which is in a band that doesn't believe in Christ, they're able to be a light in the darkness. They're able to actually share their faith with the people that attend. And again, that's also a very good point. So th- there are ways that people can look at the arts, kind of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. There are ways that people can look at the arts and they can bend and they can move in different ways and have different convictions. That's allowed within Christianity. But that's all stuff that happens in-house, right? It's, it doesn't make you not a Christian to have a different view of these things. Now, if he's singing these lyrics and he believes them, that's one thing. But if he's singing the lyrics and he's just saying, well, you know, I, I know that these don't coincide with the Bible, so I'm singing them, as Sean said, kind of in the half-truth sense, but then I'm using my life to convey the fact that these are not all the way true, right? They are deceptive, they are manipulative, and that way people will who are coming, who are coming from that lifestyle where they believe that that's true, can now be confronted by my lifestyle and they could be converted out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different, even Christian authors who think that way. They're like, well, we live in a world filled with death and sexuality and violence. And so if I'm going to write a story, it's going to contain those things, Mm -hmm. right? But I'm coming from a perspective where these things are fallen and bad. So I'm not going to glorify them, but I'm also not going to shy away from them. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a conviction issue that happens within the arts. It's it's difficult, uh, and and like I said, it's a, it's a good conversation to have. But as Sean was getting at, it's it's not a good idea to, in these secondary issues, assume that somebody doesn't believe in God because they promote a very particular form of the arts. Right? That's yeah. that's not a uh, a very, I guess, balanced view of the the issue. I would say right. Because even, I mean, when like organs were introduced to the church, right. there was upheaval and certainly drum kits and, yeah. you know, 
the it was classical guitar. Yeah, right. <laughs> exact things that we would call, you know, very maybe old fashioned and tame now. But yeah. so yeah, like you said, Sean, it's it's you know to say that style of music is satanic is, is certainly a stretch. But um, okay, thank you. Hope that helps you out. Thank you for that question. Uh, question here from S. A. Eggleton. Sounds like a very English name. <laughs> S.A. Um, should anyone who had concubines in the Bible be considered an adulterer? There was certainly a lot of that, yep. and multiple wives as well. Did God yep. have different standards back then? Or nope. Did he allow for it because of culture? Anything it was like condemned, that. <laughs> but culture still did it, just like anything else in the church today. Yeah, yeah so... so <clears throat> what we see in the Bible, and this is really shocking to people, is that God does seem to have leniency based upon cultural standards. Now, it doesn't mean he has acceptance of behaviors based on cultural standards, mm. but it means that he has leniency. So, for instance, why didn't God ever judge David for having concubines and multiple wives when he had already declared that that was not what the kings of Israel should do in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17? Well, we get the idea that God has certain amounts of leniency on people based on the culture that they're within. So, for instance, some people today, some Christians today, have difficulties looking back at different uh, church leaders who, say, had a favorable view of prostitution or slavery. And they would say, well, how can we listen to anything this guy said? Look at his views of prostitution and slavery. He, he actually supports it in some ways. Uh, or let's say Martin Luther is, a, is another kind of lightning rod. He had some interesting views of the Jewish people. And we would say, well, how could we listen to Martin Luther? The guy was a raving anti-Semite at the end of his life. He wrote a terrible book that was an inspiration to Hitler. You know, how could we listen to anything this guy said? Well, there's a different cultural standard that we have to judge people on. If you're living in a culture that universally condemns or accepts a practice and you yourself accept the same practice, I by judging you, I'm actually just judging your culture. I'm just saying the culture you live in is corrupt and they need to see that this is wrong. But you, by just conforming to what your culture has done, I'm not actually condemning you in this specific sense. Now, if you're living in a culture and you're living below the standards of a culture, that's a you problem, right? Now I can judge you on that and there shouldn't be any leniency. So if today someone was pro-slavery or today someone was pro uh, prostitution on a mass level, or they were anti-Semitic on a mass level, I would say, well, okay, you have no excuse. You're in a culture mm -hmm. that condemns these things. And so by you going beneath the culture, it means that you're really arrogantly doing that and there should be no leniency for you. So again, it's not that we have to accept these things. It's not I have to, like I have to look back at Luther and say, right on, man, you're right about that. No, I could condemn him. I could say that is unacceptable. However, I'm not going to throw out the entire corpus of his writings because he had backwards views that mirrored Germany at the time that he was writing it, right? Actually, for some of his life, he was he was way better than Germany. <laughs> and was, at the end of his life, he kind of more coincided with what the culture was saying as a whole. But you have to evaluate someone within the culture that they're living in. You cannot condemn someone wholeheartedly based on the dictates of the culture that you're living in. So a very good question. And I think that God shows us that, which is one last thing I'll mention before we move on. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why Christians should be concerned about the culture that we live in. Yeah. Mm. Right? Uh, the Some Christians are like, well, it doesn't really matter what the culture thinks about it, it's what the Bible thinks. Well, you're right and you're wrong. Uh, you're right in the sense that we should fundamentally only care about what the Bible thinks, but you also have to understand that culture does shape 
the way you think about the ethics yeah. that are presented in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how could all these church leaders for hundreds of years support slavery? It's because they lived in a culture that right. never thought about slavery as an evil, yeah. right? Eventually Christians recognized that it was, and they were the ones that tried to abolish it. However, they were living in a culture that wholeheartedly supported it. So mm -hmm. we should be concerned about the culture because the culture does shape to an extent the way you think about the morality presented to you in the scriptures. Yep. So we, we should be concerned about those things for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to give a modern United States example, obviously people on political aisles on the right would say, oh, well, you know, this, this Josiah or Uzziah-like figure is going to really solve all these cultural problems, and scripture would soundly condemn them. Woe to the man who puts his faith in man, who makes man his strength. And, or flesh is strength. And then people on the other end of the political aisle, when they're encouraged to be generous, and they say, well, I pay my taxes. There are poor houses, there are policies that give to the downtrodden, and also these corporations are racist. I'm actually being generous by being violent towards them. We would see that also biblically as condemned because of our cultural perspectives, our political affiliations. We can have a blind side if we aren't sensitive to those things and don't surround ourselves with people honest enough to call us out on it. So that's what needs to be taken into consideration. When we ask, going back to the question, when people had concubines, did that mean that sexual immorality in that sense is okay? No, no more than adultery today, no more than pornography today, no more than any form of sexual morality. But the fact that these men sinned doesn't suddenly make it, oh, well, majority vote. I guess God was just so overwhelmed by sinners, he had to, I guess, not judge everybody. No, the point was he has grace. But the point of emphasis we need to make is don't take advantage of it. Don't let sin abound, or should uh, sin abound that grace may abound. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, think, I think a great modern corollary would actually be the abortion issue. Yeah. So even within the church, uh, I, I believe the statistics are one in four women will have an abortion. So that's mm -hmm. inside the church and outside the church. And a lot of pro-lifers are like really abhorred by that statistic, and you should be, right? That's, that's an evil, just like slavery was an evil, just like concubine, uh, the practice of concubinage was an evil, but it was a culturally accepted evil. Mm. And so because of that, people had blind spots, as Sean said. They, yeah. they didn't recognize just how evil it was, and they were able to justify it utilizing various language tricks, mm. right? And in the same way, a lot of women, there, there are women within the church who don't see getting an abortion as being an immoral thing, mm. right? They, they really don't. Uh, they, they believe that what they're doing is something that is protected, that they're protecting their own rights, they're protecting the rights of other women, right? Now, again, that doesn't mean that as a Christian I would look at that and say, well, you know, you are being foolish and you're a murderer, right? I wouldn't say that because they're practicing something within a cultural uh, Overton window that they believe is an acceptable practice, so it makes sense that they would think it's righteous to do so. Mm. However, I also can't look at that and say, well, because our culture is so uniformly in agreement that abortion, especially in the first trimester, is okay, therefore there isn't anything wrong with that. That's also wrong, right? right? There's a middle ground of saying, well, it's wrong, but I, I have to judge you based on the cultural standards. I'm not going to call you a murderer, per se, because you are living in a culture that is telling you every day that this is this a socially acceptable practice. Yeah. So, I think we as Christians also have to be careful about the cultural issues that are alive today and recognize uh, the language that we're using mm. may not totally hit people correctly because they are in an Overton window. They are in a societally acceptable for frame of behavior. 
And so we, we can't actually look at them and condemn them as soundly as we want. We have to evaluate where they're coming from and where their cultural ideas are coming from. And then we have to distinguish between the people who know better and the people who don't know better and mm -hmm. judge it accordingly. So it, it becomes a more complicated issue for sure. Yeah. It's important that we, um, you know, it says in the Psalms, right, to search me, O Lord, and if there's any wicked way in me to have that kind of relationship with God where we're, allow him to speak to us and give us those convictions, even countercultural. Because, yeah, I'm sure there's things in our culture that... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that will be, well, yeah, why did I? But yeah. when you're raised that way... And I think that, you know, my grandparents' generation, I don't think being racist even existed, yeah. at least my upbringing. No, that was just, correct, you know, yeah. you just you didn't like people of color. I mean, this is what... Yeah. You know, it wasn't racist until later years. We're like, oh, that's wrong, by the way. <laughs> it's wrong to... And now we're like embarrassed. We're like, how could they ever think that how, way? Yeah. Well, because the culture thought that way. Right. Right. And so uh, the modern day idea of like, all the people who came before us were stupid when we could cancel them. You know, we, yeah. can, we could go through, you know, uh, Rudyard Kipling's books and cancel all of them and yeah. uh, Dr. Seuss and Walt Disney because they were totally backwards and wrong and we could just edit these things out because, uh, you know, why would you listen to these evil, horrible races? Oh, wait. They're coming from a different culture than yeah. you. They didn't. They didn't see it as wrong. They were blind to it. I. I think even you were talking to Bo about that today about uh, cleanliness within the home, yeah. and how like sometimes like a kid could just not see. As an adult, you see it so clearly. That yeah. is, how could you not see that that's a mess? How yeah. could you not see that that's bad? But the kid doesn't really register right. that there's something wrong with it. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Great question and discussion. Thank you for that. Uh, question from Renee. See how you interpret this. It's an interesting question that she's asking. Um, well, Renee could, could be a man's name too, but anyway, Renee. Um, <laughs> uh, I've seen prior to 9-11 a Christian book that the Twin Towers were as solid as God's word um, or that the Twin Towers, Twin Towers Foundation was compared to God's word. Uh, I thought differently. I think that nothing compares to Jesus. What's your thoughts on it? People can make an illustration or observation, but as long as the Christian book wasn't these, I don't see what that has to do with it. Yeah. So man's heart, I can't remember who said this, but uh, man's heart is an idol factory, right? We, we want to create things of our own hands yeah. that we can worship and that have the same sort of stability as God on high, as the transcendent good that, that surpasses us. We want some something visible, something tangible that we could look at and say, this is like God. This is as stable as God. Right. And that gives us comfort and it gives us uh, a satisfaction. This is why God was so emphatic with his people. You cannot make an image of me. There is nothing on this earth that is as holy, that is as good, that is as sound as I am. And any attempt that you make to create something like me will be an idol, right? It will necessarily draw you away from me, not towards me. And so it's very common and natural for man to look at what the trade, not the buildings, but what the buildings represented. The world mm. trade towers represented the world economy, right? The, the, the international trade that existed amongst the nations. And this economy at the time that they fell was really, really strong. We sometimes forget about how powerful the Western economy was at the time of 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were just coming out of the Cold War. Things were pretty sound. Everything was going really great, actually. Uh, I remember growing up in that day, and we thought we were kind of invincible as a country. We were right. like, these are going great. And then they fell, and it reminded us that, oh, uh, an idol is, I think it's Psalm 115, where he says they, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't think, and those who worship them become like them. 
Uh, you need to be very care- We need to be very careful in our hearts of what are we elevating to the place of God. So I could see why someone would say that. Like, man, the foundations of these buildings are as strong as the word of God. I want, I want to believe that, right? I want to believe that my economy is as strong as the word of God. Is it? No, mm. right? It's, it's going to fall away. And if I put my ultimate faith in it, it's not that I can't put some faith in it, but if I put my ultimate faith in it, the faith that's only due to God, I'm setting myself up for not only idolatry, but a massive disappointment in yeah. the near future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything else to share on that, Sean? No. Good question. Very interesting. One more question here, maybe. We've got five oh, minutes here. Totally. We'll see. Depends how, <laughs> how long you guys take, I guess. A uh, question from Ezekiel. He asks, what is the meaning of Proverbs 25.2, which says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. That's Proverbs 25.2. Mm-hmm. What's the meaning? What is the meaning of this? Yeah, um, Proverbs, it's in the poetry section of the Old Testament. So generally in the book, you're going to see one of four different types of Proverbs or wise sayings. Uh, Couplets and contrasts are usually the most common. Uh, A couplet is like a metaphor or a simile, comparing something with something else that you aren't familiar with and something that you are, so that the comparison makes you understand they're both the same thing. A contrast is a comparison of the lesser to the greater or the good to the best. And generally, uh, you're going to see in a lot of Jewish language, that is what they love to make points through. Now, in Proverbs 25, 2, what's being contrasted is not just the fact that there's glory, but how that glory is manifested. The glory of God, the weight, the worth of God, is to conceal a matter. Okay, so God shows himself, his worth, not in revealing a matter. What kind of matter? Well, let's note the point it's contrasted with, the glory of kings. So the comparison is God, an all-knowing being, I'll skip a few steps here so you get the point, and kings, earthly rulers, people with power, but not all-knowing. The difference between man and God, one of the things, is that they're not all-knowing where he is. They are to search out a matter. Now, obviously, God doesn't have to search out a matter because he's all-knowing. But what's interesting about this comparison is that God who if he were in the position of a king, like we talked about in a perfect government, we wouldn't have to you know, go through mysteries like Columbo and crime investigations. God could just point and that, that'd be the end of it. But when it comes to earthly authorities, they show their worth, they show their majesty in pursuit of what? Searching out a matter. What kind of matter? Well, this could be matters of you know, legal issues perhaps, and there are other ways to do this, but this is what I think the point of the Proverbs is. Man and his authority in searching out a matter pursues truth. God in searching out a matter doesn't. So what does he pursue instead? Mercy. He conceals matters. God's glory is in mercy, whereas man's glory is in judgment. The point of contrast isn't that God likes to keep information from us. It's that in contrast to legal authority seeking justice, God is seeking the restoration, the preservation of the wicked. And the interesting thing is you see this in other Proverbs as well, that you know, it's um, point after point, basically, and summarizing for the sake of time. You, know, you can expose someone, but love is demonstrated in forgiveness. You can preserve relationships by concealing a matter, but you can destroy relationships by just exposing everything. It's that kind of point. So if we're going to read into this, oh, the Bible's anti-science or whatever, no, it's just saying that 
an omniscient being. Don't you say the opposite? Yeah, the omniscient being knows everything. And the point being made is God encourages people in power on this earth to pursue truth. But if you want to be like God, our opportunity to model him should be in the pursuit of mercy. Yeah, uh, someone could come away from that and think like, well, is God intentionally concealing things from people? Well, there, there are various reasons as to why in the Proverbs uh, it, God is portrayed that way. But like I said, it is, it is actually putting the opposite intention as to men is not supposed to pursue science. It's actually God does not delineate or he doesn't give information to man just by asking for it. So, so Solomon could be like, hey, just ask God and he'll reveal everything to you, you know, because that's how we're supposed to rule and reign. And many kings of Solomon's day said that. They're mm. like, hey, I have a direct line to God. And so you should just listen to me. And Solomon is saying, that's not how it works. You have to seek it out, right? God's just not going to give it to you. You have to seek out truth and you have to rule your people based upon the truth that you're figuring out. Yep. So uh, there, is a, there is a reality. There is a truth that we can discover, but it accords to God who has concealed it, who has made us work for it, if you want to put it that way. And so we are, as human beings, we're supposed to pursue that. And we're supposed to honor God in our wisdom as well as in the revelation that he's given us. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people are, uh, they don't pursue truth because they think God's just going to tell them what to do. Mm. That's not going to happen, right? right? God, every now and then will give you some sort of uh, di direct revelation. But for the most part, he wants you to seek that out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Ezekiel, great question. Thank you for that. Hope that helps you out. Sean, Peter, thank you so much for your time today, being available. Great show. We'll be back here again uh, tomorrow, same time and same places. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com, and we can get to those questions tomorrow as well. Have a wonderful rest of your day or evening, wherever you are. God bless. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.